Welcome to Talking True Cases. I'm Mark Williams-Thomas and today's guest is a fascinating individual who has got wide experience in relation to crime and he's going to share that with me in particular in relation to one specific case. And that individual is Michael Hallows, a former Scotland Yard detective. And we're going to talk about the biggest gun running investigation. But before I do that, I want to briefly discuss two cases which have really interested me. And that is this week there was coverage of a tragic murder-suicide in Scotland. Miss Marielle Sturlock, 35, was found dead at a home in Glasgow. She was 20... nine weeks pregnant and taught that Sam had seen her unborn child unfortunately did not survive. This led to a major police search to find her partner David Yates. The last confirmed sighting of Mr Yates was shortly after 8pm on Sunday. His car was found in a car park at Mugdock Country Park prompting an extensive search by the police to find him. Two days later his body was recovered and found in the reservoir. Officers said that whilst Yates' death was not being treated as suspicious, Marrell's death was the centre of a murder probe. A crime that's always uh, upset people, of course, in relation to this, is a crime when an individual was murdered in the manner that they were, and that now has shocked the community. Unfortunately, we don't know the full answers as to why that took place, but it has shocked the people of Glasgow. And of course, there is now some real support that is being given to the people at her school. So we wish her family well in the forthcoming days and months as they come to terms with the tragic death of their loved one and their daughter. Let me move to another case. There is a case that often causes so much anger in the public. And that is not the abuse of children, not the abuse of the elderly, but interesting, the abuse of animals. Whenever there's a case in the public and people look at that, and there is also always this real anger that people have when a animal is hurt. And particularly, of course, when it's done deliberately. And the, sh the true facts to what I'm about to tell you probably make it more worse because this case involves the assault, the brutal assault of a dog by a serving police officer. Greater Manchester Police Sergeant Martin Dunn worked in its specialist operation branch and in March 2021 he was filmed repeatedly punching a puppy as it had gone to the toilet in his house. You can see here from the the video that he walks outside, he then grabs hold of the dog and he punches that dog. And night and also misses causing unnecessary harm to animals. He was handed a community order and 120 hours unpaid work. Dunn then faced a hearing with his police force and as a result of that he has now been sacked 
by Greater Manchester Police. Truly shocking case and very sad, of course, that the very person that we put our trust in to look after us and to keep us safe is the very person that muted out. Thankfully, up and down the country, there are police officers who do an amazing job. Much of it goes unnoticed. People make no reference to it. Of course, we only ever cover majority of the time the cases where something's gone wrong, as in this case, the bad apple in the police force, as there is in every single walk of life. A very sad case, and thankfully done now, has been sacked by his police force and, from, and has been banned from working or banned from having animals. That takes me on to today's guest. Now, Michael Hallows is a former Scotland Yard detective with over 30 years experience, a veteran of policing the capital. He's worked on some of the most high-profile investigations. Some of you will have heard of those, the arrest of the Mardi Gras bomber and the London nail bomber. On retiring from the Metropolitan Police as a detective chief superintendent, you can see a picture of Michael there, he was appointed to the Emergency Services Commissioner for the state of Victoria in Australia in 2011. He served with the Metropolitan Police in both specialist operations and specialist crime. And Michael has authored a book, Operation Abonar, which is an untold story of Britain's biggest gun running investigation, which he led. It explores how MAC-10 machine guns be began appearing in gangland shootings in the 1990s. And at length, Michael and his fellow colleagues had to go about trying to stop that input of guns and catch those individuals who were responsible for bringing guns into this country. Indeed, some of those guns are still in circulation today. How worrying is that? Michael, I'm very pleased so much for coming on board and, and talking to us. This is a, a, a situation which, whilst it was many years ago, still has ramifications today. There are still those some of those guns in circulation. Oh, indeed. Thank you for the invitation, Mark, uh, to your podcast. And yes, um, only last month I was asked to go uh, to the um, Metropolitan Police Firearms Forensics Unit to look at imagery that they had recovered from uh, from a crime where it was, again, one of the um, Abenar MAC-10s. And, and in terms of, let's, let's talk about how this starts. So what is it that causes you to start to identify that these MAC-10s are in, are in circulation? Um, if I just prefix that by saying this was my very first um, Scotland Yard investigation. Uh, and at that time in 97, my job was running corporate services for the Director of Intelligence. And we were the intelligence hub uh, for... Uh, information coming from all over the country about firearms seizures and shootings. And a file came across my desk from my intelligence unit, which showed that MAC-10s uh, loaded with particular blue-tipped 9mm ammunition were being used uh, in Glasgow, in Manchester, Liverpool, and, and, and one across the water in Dublin. And it got my interest immediately uh, because at this around about the same time, uh, someone had apparently told customs that if police went to a car park of a hotel in Gravesend, they would find more guns. And when the police in Kent did go there, they found um, four more of these MAC-10s with a bag load of the blue-tipped ammunition, along with other firearms. 
Uh, and that's really how the investigation kicked off. Um, and, and where that, are the Mac 10s coming from? Sorry, um, Michael. That's okay. At that time, so you're looking there, that image is one from the very first recovery that Customs directed us to. And that was to a side street in Whitechapel. And Customs said they had anonymous information uh, that told them to tell us uh, there were guns intended for criminals. They were hidden in a particular car. The informant gave the registration, the color, the make and everything. And that is what the first officers found was a green holdall containing all those handguns uh, together with ammunition and, and uh, some blocks of cannabis. And in, in terms of the supply of these guns, talk me through organized crime. Well, the book, and I'm very cautious of this. This is, of course, writing a book is a bit of a vanity project for anyone, particularly if it's autobiographical like this, and it's true. Um, the, the, as you'll find in the book, it's actually all part of an elaborate scam on this side. So running parallel to that, there are other guns that are not intended for the scam that are being supplied by the same armorer, and they are going into the hands of organized um, criminals to, who are using them in various um, gang feuds up and down the country. An organized crime linked to drugs, linked to money, what's the, the path of this? The, the people involved in, in wanting the guns were definitely involved in, in the wholesale supply of, of controlled drugs, uh, both amphetamines and heroin. Uh, the armourer uh, just was in it for the money. And where do they originate from? And, and was this a circulation that was occurring in other countries or was it particularly UK focused? This was very UK focused. Um, as you'll find in the book, if you go to the back pages, you'll see some photographs. Uh, some of the guns were turning up uh, wrapped in Hessian mutton cloth, which uh, is used in engineering as a hand wipe, a hand towel. But it was made in Albania. And both the, um, the wrappings uh, and the frames of the guns had been uh, marked in Cyrillic writing which suggested that they had been smuggled into the country. From this was very much a, very much a homegrown uh, operation, criminal enterprise. And in terms of the guns themselves, I mean, were you able to establish just how many in crimes they were involved in? I mean, were they involved in, in murders? Um, they're certainly involved in, in the murder of uh, Devon Dawson, who was shot uh, outside a pub in... Um, in Cold Harbour Lane, Brixton. Uh, we know that for certain. We know that since the investigation in 2003, uh, one was used but not recovered uh, in the murder in Birmingham of what is colloquially known as the Shakespeare sisters. So, uh, and, and these are submachine guns. Am I right in saying these are submachine guns? Yeah, they're submachine guns. They're, they're a horrendous weapon. Um, mm. That they were designed initially for use by special forces in the United States during the Vietnam War. Um, and they have been copied by multiple people. Uh, and these ones were British made copies. Uh, made uh, what were they, in what were they trading as value wise? Um, it depends. Um, anything from a thousand pounds upwards. Um, the armourer was supplying them uh, with a 
a threaded barrel that could take a silencer and different size magazine clips, everything from 20 to 30 round clips. Uh, and this gun can uh, shoot off um, a complete magazine of 30 in under two seconds. It's 1,200 rounds a minute. So you only Gosh, have to touch scary. the trigger. Only have to touch the trigger, and it's and it goes. And it's such a shock when you touch the trigger that it probably takes you a full second to realise you fire between 10 and 15 rounds. I mean, that's, that's scary. I mean, that, that, to have those types of guns circulating for criminals. And, and did you find, I mean, one of the issues with, with London in particular, and, and it is prevalent in other major cities, is, is black on black. And obviously Operation Trident set up to, to target that. And there's a lot of, of fighting within themselves. Was that where a lot of these guns were going? Was it going on inter-gang inter feuds? It was very much. And in fact, in the book, I, I, I talk about a particular shooting in, in Broccoli Park, which was exactly that. Uh, there was a, um, a business transaction between um, drug suppliers and drug buyers, which went horribly wrong. And, uh, and a MAC-10 from this investigation that we can link back to the armour was used uh, with very lethal effect. But uh, unfortunately, and, and we, didn't, we didn't recover the gun, uh, but we know it was one of the MAC-10s because it has a very distinctive breech bolt that when that strikes the bullet and rams it into the barrel and it fires... Um, the mark from that breech bolt is totally unique. It's it, it's quite a quite an interesting mark. So we know from the bullet shell casings recovered that it was one of these Abenar Mac tens. But we we've never recovered that particular gun. I, I want to talk in a minute in relation to the the, the the key individuals involved, and I know you've got to be a bit cautious in terms of that. But before that, in terms of the guns that were coming into this country, how many do you think? came in what's it's interesting because they came in quite legitimately um, and what you're looking at there is the second recovery that was made as part of the customs information and that one was from the wix car park in plasto so all of those guns actually had come into the country quite lawfully they had been bought on the military surplus market um, and then they had been lost um, siphoned off uh, and had all their serial numbers obliterated in the hope that we could not trace where they came from. But the, the criminal armourer, we know that he handled somewhere in the region of 600 handguns, and he had been responsible for manufacturing um, at least 100 MAC-10s. The photograph you've shown before is of, um, is of the 60 that we stopped him from... Um, actually putting onto the market. Yep. So that, that was from his workshop. Uh, so that's just one of the crates that contained uh, in total more than 60 uh, of these MAC-10 machine guns being prepared so for the market. Legitimately bought guns, yeah. uh, doctored to make sure that their identity is unretrievable, and then flooded into the UK market knowing that it's going into organised crime. Is that fair? Oh, yes, absolutely. Absolutely. Um, so uh, you can understand from my point of view as a, as a newly appointed detective inspector, with all this information uh, and knowing the consequences were, were absolutely horrendous, 
Uh, and with police officers in Manchester, I mean, the book opens with what actually happened in Manchester, where patrolling officers were fired at with a, with a full magazine, you know, 29 rounds. Uh, and thank God they weren't hit. But the and to talk me through that, that sounds that's scary. How did that come about? What was that operation? Um, it was in Moss Side. It was at a time in the in '97 when there were gang feuds and and there were shootings. And a member of the public observed these youths outside uh, her property and decided to call the police and say this isn't right. And as the officers turned into the street, they spotted the youths you know, wearing anoraks with hoods, uh, hiding their faces. They parked their car with the headlights on full beam, so these men are illuminated and as they step forward they speak on the radio which gives it away that the silhouettes are actually police officers and not just residents and all hell is let loose when one of the youths uh, takes a mac 10 from under his coat and fires directly at the officers but knowing they were officers absolutely knew they were officers and um because the gun fires at such a high rate if you're not used to that it will go all over the place. Yeah. Uh, and that's what happened, thankfully. So, but anybody could have been hit in the house uh, that provided the backstop for that, uh, that horrendous... Any, any collateral um, damage. The collateral damage is there massively. And, I, and these, oh. the, the bullets you talk about, um, you know, I did a lot of work in relation to Oscar Pistorius, and we looked at the metal jackets and the fact that, you know, the law enforcement, particularly abroad, you know, favour the metal jackets coming out of the US because of the collateral damage. And, and, in, and in simplistic terms, you shoot your target. What you don't want is the bullet to pass out the other side and end up shooting other people. And in fact, one of the uh, elements in terms of security is that you know, by, whilst they do more impact and damage, they do stop that collateral element. But in relation to the bullets you were dealing, what, what were they? There were two types of nine millimeter um, made by Israeli military industry. One has a an ordinary copper jacket. Uh, the second has the same, but it it has a painted blue tip. The painted blue tip it indicates it's it's subsonic, so it is to be used pretty well as an assassin weapon uh, with a silencer, so that the combination of the subsonic <coughs> ammunition with the suppressor. Uh, the sound moderator or silence, what do you want to call it, uh, is that you won't hear it coming. And so in the criminal world, that's just ideal for the sort of drive-by shooting uh, that happened down in Brixton and was also why it became highly desirable uh, to a man called Paul Ferris uh, from Glasgow who ordered three of them and was, uh, I'm glad to say, stopped in a combined operation uh, involving MI5, Strathclyde Police and the then Southeast Regional Crime Squad. So I don't want to pick up on him, but just before that, dealing with the bullets again. So uh, I'm not that familiar with some machine guns, but my understanding, and I suppose in this simplistic term, is machine guns don't tend to come with a silencer on it. But it with a silencer fitted to a machine gun with a bullet uh, with the blue tip, that sounds absolutely lethal. Oh, absolutely. And um, uh, what's also interesting with this is that uh, the armourer was not only supplying MAC-10s, but a range of other firearms in particular. Would you go back to the photographs of the um, the, the plasto seizure where you've got the guns laid out with the hold all in there um, at the bottom of the of the centre is a silver pistol. That's a MAB. 
and that map uh, was supplied um, with a silencer uh, and 7.65-millimeter uh, ammunition uh, and was actually being carried uh, by a man called John Ackerman, and, and he had been given that gun or bought that gun um, from uh, our armourer. And then uh, Paul Ferris, he sent a man down to London to buy a Czech-made uh, CZ pistol again, where the armor had supplied it with a screw-on barrel uh, and a silencer. So we're, we're getting into a, in an interesting dynamic where um, guns that were originally designed for assassination, covert operations, military uh, law enforcement operations, are suddenly um, being used by organized crime uh, with the intention of being silent in, in their deadly deeds. Shocking, mate. Talk me through that operation. So MI5, Strathclyde, uh, and, and obviously yourselves, that's a coordinated operation. How risky was that? Did, did you did you get this? I mean, the, the fear, of course, is that they turn the guns on you. And, and were there times you had to let operations run in order to to find out more or get get the guns? It's interesting you say that because you'll find in the book, and, and I'm conscious of not doing too many spoilers in the yeah, absolutely. But the, the arrest of Paul Ferris um, collided with my own investigation. So I had absolutely no involvement in Paul Ferris's arrest, um, despite what uh, one of the Scottish newspapers wrote recently. Um, it, it wasn't me. Um, but what had happened was that um, Strathclyde police had determined that Paul Ferris uh, was indeed um, up to no good. They had tried... Uh, to prosecute him successfully, but he got got off with murder. Um, he'd been acquitted. The evidence was just not there. The jury didn't agree with the, the prosecution case. But he, Ferris was still at it. And Ferris has written about this, so I'm not giving anything new away. Um, and he was determined to protect his criminal endeavours um, with firearms. And he wanted them, and he found a contact in Islington in North London who knew the armourer um, who was supplying the guns that we already talked about. And what then happened is that uh, Ferris uh, sent an individual, Joseph McCauley, um, to London to pick one up, a CZ, but unbeknownst to him, he was already under surveillance. And um, as the book tells, it's an interesting story, um, MI5 uh, followed him to the make the purchase in Islington all the way from Glasgow, followed him to King's Cross and on the train back to, to Glasgow, where um, he was befriended in the bar and bought drinks to the point where um, the shadowy side of his personality came out under the influence of alcohol and he became quite punchy. The guard on the train was so um, uh, suspicious of what the man was likely to do that he phoned ahead to British Transport Police, who boarded the train at Preston, and uh, arrested him, whereupon they found the pistol, ammunition, and silencer. Uh, and um, his drinking buddies then went back to MI5 HQ at Thames House uh, to um, brief their colleagues uh, of what they'd done, which in turn caused Ferris to get so angry, uh, not realising it was MI5 who'd um, duped his, his courier, that he decided he would get on the train himself and come to London and buy the guns him personally. Uh, which was all part of the long-term plan of Strathclyde Police and MI5. And it was only then, as part of the huge surveillance operation, that they brought in the London end with the Southeast Regional Crime Squad. 
Um, I knew nothing of that, um, but I did know that there was a major operation going on and no one was talking to me um, because we might walk straight through their investigation and spoil it. We didn't, uh, but it was extremely useful what we could then share with Strathclyde, MI5, um, and South Regional Crime Squad, which led to a successful investigation as far as Abenar was concerned. Sorry, Mark, I've lost you. I've got no sound. So you've got this, you've got this book, uh, which focuses on Operation Abenar. What made you write a book? I mean, you've basically got to a position where you've retired now. You've um, you, you've done you know incredible jobs within the force. Why a book about this? Is this something that particularly resonates, continues to resonate with you? It does. I mean, it, for me, as I say, it's very personal. It was my first major investigation on being appointed a detective inspector. Um, it's very pertinent because even today, when the laboratory asked me to come and look at uh, what they had, it's very clear that it still continues. There is a, an awful legacy uh, that the armourer um, carried through. It's also a fascinating story. You know, the, the, the basic premise that you've got um, customs officers uh, being duped by people who want to be released from prison and customs officers then going to the Home Office to convince the Home Secretary to release them, and two indeed were released. I mean, it's, it's an extraordinary set of events that hasn't really been widely told. And then what? even though um, the two characters in who are mentioned in the book, Hass and Bennett, were released 11 months into their 18-year sentences, um, they've, they've been rearrested. But no one knew that they were publicly that there was a third criminal trying to do exactly the same uh, trick uh, on the then Home Secretary Michael Howard. Uh, so that's all new information, uh, as well as the whole um, story of what was going on and what the legacy is from that even today. And in terms of the book, so this is a book that uh, you, I mean, how did that come about? People find it quite interesting. You know, you're, you're a police officer and you decided, do you know, let's write a book. Was it something you came up with? Was it was it a publisher came to you? How did that come about? No, it was, it was my idea. It was locked down. Um, and I'd always wanted to tell the story. Um, I had, uh, for years after it, um, had the, the benefit of having the knowledge from this uh, to work on a number of international um, projects, one of which was at the United Nations, uh, where I could use first-hand knowledge from this investigation and others from Scotland Yard. Um, so I decided it was time to write it down. You know, I've got um, two children who probably never knew what their father actually did. Yeah. Um, so it's a bit of a, a revelation for them. Um, it's a bit of a revelation for my mother too. Um, so yeah, th there's lots of reasons. Um, but as I said, it's a, it's a vanity project writing a book, particularly one that's autobiographical. Um, it's, but it's also quite fun. It's very cathartic. Mm, I guess, yeah. And write and, and hope that other people find the story fascinating. Uh, and, and if you're into true crime, I think this is one of those, well, I know it's one of those books that, um, celebrates the the art of good forensic analysis yeah. and 
and excellent data analytics by some very talented people. And we don't often see that um, either in books or, or, or on the TV. You know, we get the you know, NCIS type things. But the, the capability the in this book, a lot of it was pioneering. And I wanted to celebrate the fact that you know, I had a team of fantastic pioneers who no one would ever know about. Yeah, uh, the, the, unsung, the unsung people. And I think there's an awful lot, you know, detail. I'm a, I'm a great details man. And I think it's great. You watch television and sometimes it's quite superficial, but it's great to get the detail. So there's one thing that comes out of the book, and that is there's a one individual who is unnamed. Uh, <laughs> there's one individual who uh, you haven't named. Just talk me through that. I mean, are we going to find out who this person is soon? Oh, um, it's a very interesting question because uh, the character in the book I call Fred Donovan. It is not his real name. There are enough signposts in the book for Fred Donovan to know that I'm talking about him. And he may well step forward. Um, but that would would have consequences because he's never been prosecuted, mm. whereas others have. So he's at large. He's at large. He's in the. Oh, public. he's very much at large. Um, he is a big character, uh, and if you join up the dots, you'll know immediately who it is. Uh, and he is. He's been in the papers very recently um, through family connections. So uh, I haven't named him um, because Perhaps I think he's got a previous. Perhaps he's got previous spent time in jail? Oh, yes. Yes. Uh, the book makes it very clear. Um, he wanted to get out, and he wanted to um, trick the Home Secretary in the same way as he had almost tricked customs and almost tricked the Home Office, but he hadn't um, worked, thought out for himself that we at Scotland Yard would cut right through what he was doing uh, and and keep him uh, firmly under under our monitoring uh, until we were able to bring the so, whole. So he let's take the basis. He reads the book, Michael. So he reads the book. Will he be shocked at what you knew was going on? Found out? Yeah, I think he will. Um, uh, if I tell you, he's tried to sue me. Um, he has, has he? Right. He's tried to sue me um, and didn't stop until. Um, 2009. So he he's very angry that he didn't get any benefit, and that's quite deliberate. Why should he? Uh, but he has definitely tried to sue me and two others for not getting any benefit from this investigation. Um, he will find out now, probably for the first time, the evidence that I would have given if he had carried on all the way uh, through the judicial process, and he almost certainly would have gone to prison as a result of it. Um, and, and I'll just say that when you get the book and you look at the cover, there's a lot of symbology, like a Dan Brown novel, um, that's in that cover. You've got the gun, which is absolutely critical. Um, you've got the operation name in blood red, but it's been redacted. And you need to get to the end of the book to understand why that redaction is so important to the story. Well, listen, Michael, fascinating. This book is available through all book suppliers, uh, Amazon and all the other local suppliers. Please go and buy it. I mean, I, I, what, I, what I find fascinating is, of course, 
these things happened so long ago, but there's still ramifications now. Those guns, some of those guns are still in circulation. And the work that you and the rest of your team did was instrumental in stopping some of those guns. Of course, you were never able to stop them all. And some of those, sadly, are still in circulation. And I, I, I take my hat off to you, the boldness to, you know, whilst you haven't named him, it's very clear to him, it was very clear to him, and it was very clear to those other people involved in this, who you are talking about. And and I think that's a bold step. And I, and I you know, credit you for taking that stance. And I think the work that you have done is, is fantastic. The rest of your team, uh, to be able to take these things on at risk, at risk. So well done, thank you so much. Well, you're very kind uh, to say that. Uh, I did have a great team, uh, and, and there are a lot of people um, who are outside of policing who really helped us pioneer um, some processes that others might think, wow, that's an invasion of privacy. Um, but the lawful processing of communications data was something that we really started to pioneer in this investigation. And I take my hat off to the people in the British telecoms industry, both the landline BT as well as our mobile phone operators, who did a fantastic job, really fantastic job in, in using this as a, an opportunity to, to crack um, an organized crime gang that thought they'd been so clever in anonymizing their ways of communicating. Uh, and I want to celebrate, and I hope people will buy the book and get a thrill out of um, the, those capabilities that policing and good process brings to catching bad guys. Brilliant. Listen, fantastic. One of our listeners has asked for the cost of the book. How much does the book cost? Um, it's 466 pages uh, with photographs, unfortunately black and white. I did submit them in colour. Um, so it's a big book. It's, it's in paperback. In fact, I've I've got one here. Um, so it's a thick, thick book. Um, it's recommended retail price is $18.99, but I've, um, I've, I've seen it this morning because I've had to buy it for a friend who's coming over from Australia where it's over $40. Um, it's cost me £21 uh, pounds this morning. Um, but the price has fluctuated on, on Amazon. Uh, you can, of course, get it on Kindle for about, I think, $5.99 as an ebook. Brim. Michael, listen, thank you so much. Please do go and buy the book. I think there's a real value. If you are a true crime fan, this sounds to me to be absolutely the book to buy. And the great thing is, of course, is that it'll leave you, you know, from the beginning to the end, you know, wanting more, wanting to find out more information. And I think, actually, if we watch this space, Michael, and I know you can't talk too much about what's coming up in the future, but we may see it on the big screen. You may indeed. Let's watch this space. Um, yeah. <laughs> brilliant listen to the excellent work you and your by keeping or helping to keep this country safe and stop you know, the flood of guns coming into it so thank you very much well thank that you, was michael michael has got an incredible background and uh, thank you michael michael's background is fantastic uh, this is a man who with his colleagues put his life at risk and I don't say that in 
a throwaway comment. He talked about Moss side and the officers turning up and being confronted by a gang on the ground. And whenever you go after criminals, criminals particularly who are uh, gun runners or those criminals who are using guns within their criminal day-to-day -day life, that means that they are putting themselves at risk. Putting themselves at risk, not just in relation to obviously meeting and engaging with them. We heard how MI5 set up a very, very good sting going undercover, but also in relation to this just sheer flooding of guns into this community. And the sad reality is, is that those guns are still in supply, some of those. But there are many that aren't because of the thankful and the, the, the dedicated work of Michael and the rest of the team. Well, thank you so much, Michael. Please, please do go and buy his book. Well, next week on Talking Truth Cases, we will be speaking with Professor Carl Chin, NBE, who is the renowned historian, author, and broadcaster. He's written numerous books, but we'll be speaking to him specifically about Peaky Blinders, the real, the real story. Many of you know the name Peaky Blinders from the hit TV series. But what is the gang's true history? And what activities were they involved in? So join us live on Talking True Crimes on Thursday, the 11th of May at 1pm to find out. And you never know, I might even dress up for the occasion. Thank you for joining us. Do take care and look after yourself. Okay. I, 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 I,